You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you, and grace to you, and peace to you, uh, wherever you find yourself on this Sunday morning. Um, We are longing for the day that we will get to gather uh, together again, and we would much prefer to do that. Uh, But for as long as it is unsafe to do so, we will um, continue to monitor the situation as this pandemic uh, is developing and um, continue to update our website and our other communication channels accordingly uh, and continue to seek um, wisdom and prudence as well as love and compassion uh, in our response, uh, both to our church family uh, as well as uh, to this region and even even globally. Um, so thank you for taking some time and uh, joining with us from, from wherever you are this morning. Uh, we're going to continue on uh, in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, even debated that a little bit this week, whether or not we should uh, do a special kind of sermon series in particular to address this moment that we're in. And there might come a time uh, to do that. Uh, one of the gifts that we want to offer, though, is um, some semblance of our regular routines uh, and rhythms of life. And so to continue on in the series that we've been in uh, since the start of 2020 felt like maybe the right decision. Uh, So we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Mark today. And today we've reached Mark chapter 13. So if you have a Bible there at home, you can make your way to Mark 13. And it's a passage this morning where Jesus will teach his disciples about his return. Whenever Christians start to talk about the, the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, Uh, It always seems to gravitate toward controversy uh, and toward speculation. And people will uh, come out of the woodwork uh, with a newspaper in one hand, with the book of Revelation in the other, and start to predict dates and start to predict times, and will start to uh, make charts that that display the events that are going to unfold before Jesus is coming. And I was thinking about that this week. Uh, I find it odd, too, that those charts are always with, like, terrible graphic design. Always with terrible graphic design. Like if you'd think, right, it begs the question, like if you're able to understand the secret timing of God, could you not also hire a good graphic designer or even take an art class yourself? We've arrived at this text, as you know, at an interesting cultural moment uh, in the middle of a pandemic, a local uh, and statewide and national and global crisis uh, that we really don't experience often, or maybe have never experienced in our life before. And so in this moment, when we think about the second coming of Christ, there's both a danger and there's a gift to arrive at Mark 13 today. The danger is that in moments like these, we'll probably see a spike in speculation. We'll probably see a spike in speculation, in predictions uh, about the end times. Perhaps that COVID-19 is even part of the end. Maybe after two decades or so now on the down low, we'll see like a spike in sales again of the Left Behind series. Now, anybody, anybody remember, uh, remember those? We'll maybe see a spike in the book sales of Left Behind. We won't see a spike, though, in the movies uh, because even full-on martial law lockdown don't make people that, that desperate. Those movies are, are bad. They're bad. Uh, but here's the gift. If that's the danger, here's the gift. In the midst of global events like the COVID-19 pandemic... We're examining our lives much more than we naturally do. And so is everyone else around us. We're thinking about what's important. We're anxious 
I'm anxious about the future. The unknowns of life are prominent. Our limitations and our inabilities are constantly in front of our eyes in these days. And so Mark chapter 13 is an opportunity to remember that Jesus is the returning one. We've seen throughout this gospel, he's so many things. He's the healing one, the powerful one. He's also the returning one. That as the ancient church acclamation puts it, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so as we consider this text, hopefully this morning it will clarify some of the the misconceptions around the return of Jesus. But most importantly, let us together this morning from wherever we are, listen to Jesus teach his followers how we are meant to live in light of the fact, in light of the reality that Jesus is the returning one. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and and earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. O Christ, our Savior, you have promised that you will one day return. Make us ready for your coming, that we may consider daily, and even this day, what sort of people we're called that we may be found as faithful servants waiting and working for our master's return. In your mercy, grant that many may know him and be known by him before he comes, and make us bold in our witness until that day. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Three things uh, that we will consider from Mark chapter 13 today. Temple and tribulations, unexpected expectation, and everyday implications. So temple and tribulations, our unexpected expectation, and everyday implications. First, the signs of Jesus' return involve the temple and tribulations. So this final discourse in Mark's gospel, Jesus' final discourse, is prompted by an observation from one of his disciples. Uh, they're in Jerusalem together. Herod's temple is there. Herod's temple is twice the size of the original temple that was built by King Solomon centuries earlier. It was an impressive site, an impressive structure. And so this disciple says to Jesus, wow, Jesus, is this not amazing that these buildings... Jesus replies, do you see these great buildings? They will all go away. They'll all be torn down. And then a short time later, as they're sitting together on the Mount of Olives, which gives this great vantage point of the Temple Mount and the Temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, who are the first four disciples that were called by Jesus, they ask him privately, they ask him two main questions. When and what signs? When will this happen and what signs will precede it. And what follows in the rest of this chapter has been, throughout the history of the church, notoriously difficult to interpret. And part of that is because Jesus speaks here of signs both in the more immediate future and of signs that will come much later at the very end of the age. So in the more immediate future, uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, there will be false Christs, false messiahs who lead people astray. 
There will be wars and earthquakes and famines and persecution and family division. On the positive side, there will also be a massive global spread of the gospel, the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. Then in the more distant future, there will be intense tribulation. Uh, there will be what Jesus, who is quoting from the prophet Daniel, calls the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. There's probably already been some fulfillments of that throughout history. But uh, in short, what Jesus is talking about here is a great act of profaning or blaspheming the name of God. Ultimately, in the distant future, there will be cosmic signs. The sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven. And then, we read there in verse 26, Jesus, the Son of Man, will come in the clouds with great glory and power. He will gather his people from the ends of the earth. When we read passages like this one with fulfillments that are both more immediate and long-term, it's often helpful to picture a mountain range. When you're standing really far off from a mountain range, those mountains look really close together. They look like one unit, and in some ways, they are. But the closer you actually get to that mountain range, the more you realize that the individual peaks, the individual mountains are separated and sometimes separated by a great distance. And so Mark 13 here gives us really the, the full mountain range view, both the near and the far together. And there are two hints, two little phrases that are hints that help us differentiate the more immediate from the more long-term signs. So when Mark in this text uses the phrase, these things, these things, and he says that in verse 4, verse 8, verse 29, and verse 30, he seems there to be talking about the more immediate signs. On the other hand, when Mark uses the phrase, those days, in verse 17, in verse 19, in verse 24, he seems there to be talking about the end of the age and the actual return of, of Jesus. Those things are connected. Uh, the immediate signs are glimpses of, they, they foreshadow the long-term ones. They're part of the same mountain range, in other words. But if the disciples here are inclined to connect them too closely, Jesus also makes a point to separate them. He says in verse 7 in particular that these immediate signs will happen, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. And in fact, these are only the start of the birth pains. And as any of you who have given birth know, and know far better than I do, the pain of birth starts well before the birth itself, before the delivery. The birth pains actually offer no guarantee of the, the precise timing when that birth will happen. Sometimes uh, you start contractions and you go to the hospital and then you get sent home because the time is not yet. And the pain can last a long time before the actual birth. Indeed, it has. Indeed, it has for us. As history played out, the immediate signs that Jesus speaks of here took place within 30 or 40 years of Jesus' words. Uh, as he said in verse, in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until, quote, these things, the more immediate signs, take place. So in the year eight, uh, 70 A.D., the future Roman emperor Titus besieged Jerusalem. And in August of that year, he burned and he destroyed 
Herod's temple. The early church historian Josephus estimates that in the five-year period or so before and after that moment, nearly a million Jews and Christians died by either crucifixion, famine, or other horrors related to that. And if you were alive in those days, you would have surely thought the end had come. You would have thought, well, this is it. And you would have thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow, that the stars were about to fall from the sky. And in fact, there were false Christs, false prophets who led people astray in those days. And the same thing has repeated itself in every generation since. Wikipedia actually keeps a a running list of people who have claimed to be either Jesus or the Jewish Messiah, Messiah, and it's not a short list. It's a long list. It's a little bit scary. When global circumstances get bad, when wars and earthquakes and famines occur, we can now even add pandemics to that list. People wonder if this is the end. Some already have and no doubt will in these days claim that it is. Some will claim to have cracked the code and some perhaps will even claim to be Jesus returned. But in Mark's gospel, let us remember the real Jesus has given us the grid to navigate this. He has told us all of these things as he says beforehand. These signs perhaps foreshadow the end. They they might be part of the same mountain range, but these are the birth pains. The end is not yet. And what's more, though there are signs, what Jesus does in the collective whole of this passage is redirect our focus. He redirects our focus. Like the disciples, we are inclined to ask the questions when... And what signs? And though Jesus does speak to those here in this text, what Jesus does even more is tell his disciples there are better questions. There are better questions. Namely, is this true? And if so, how should followers of Jesus live in light of his return? So second, second, not only the signs of temple and tribulations, but Jesus' return is our unexpected expectation. Our unexpected expectation. If you've been uh, a Christian for a while, if you grew up around Christians, if you grew up uh, in the church, then, then you, like me, are inclined to forget how incredible and how radical all of this is. That rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of God the Father, that Jesus will one day return in power and glory. That he will, as we recite together in the Apostles' Creed sometimes, that he will uh, return to judge the living and the dead. That he will complete his work of reconciling the world to himself. Every time that you and I are inclined to agonize, to fixate on the when question or on the what signs question, we should instead in those moments run back to this revolutionary, eternity-shaping truth that Christ will come again. And no one will miss it. No one will miss it. Is that not the fear that underlies all of the speculation? That this is going to happen in some hidden corner, some secret thing, and that only the the smartest people, only those who have channeled their inner Nicolas Cage in National Treasure and cracked the code are going to get it, are going to be ready and aware of that? 
Look what Jesus says here. When the end comes, the heavens will be shaken. The Son of Man will come with great power and glory. He will gather his people from the ends of the earth. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you will know when this happens. You will know when this moment happens. In Revelation chapter 1, it speaks of the same thing, and it says Jesus will come on the clouds and every eye will see him. So here's the paradox of Jesus' return. No one, including Jesus himself, knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows when. And at the same time, no one should be surprised when this does happen because Jesus has told us that it will. So we might say that Jesus' return is our unexpected expectation. Unexpected in its timing, but completely expected in its certainty. And notice here this mysterious, incredible reality of who Jesus is. In his full humanity, he's embraced a limitation that not even he knows the day or the hour of his return. But also in his full divinity and in his glory, he says in verse 31, that though heaven and earth might pass away, his words never will. That's how fixed, that's how certain his return is. We know not when, but we do know that he will come again. At some point, every generation thinks that Jesus is going to return during their lifetime. And to date, every generation has been wrong. Every generation has been wrong. So if you've ever had that thought, like Jesus is probably coming in my lifetime, that's okay, that's, that's normal, just know that it's also not unique. It's not some kind of special revelation that God has given you. It's certainly not God telling you to rent a billboard or start a blog and to tell everybody the precise date that the world is going to end. But if we can avoid the error of thinking that our generation is somehow special, if we can avoid the error of trying to determine a precise date, there's something really good and right about this expectation. And I confess, and it's probably already evident in my own words this morning, when people, when people talk about, when people say they think that Jesus is going to return soon, I'm quick to become cynical. I'm quick to become cynical. I'll nod and smile politely because I'm a nice guy. But because no one knows the day or the hour, I'd rather just leave it at that. So you might say that, that I'm naturally better at the unexpected part of this paradox. I'm better at the unexpected part. But I need actually to grow in this. I need to be equally expectant. To be convinced that Jesus is coming back soon is actually far more faithful than what I find in my own heart at times. The Apostle Paul, for example, he never guaranteed that Jesus would come back during his lifetime. But it sure sounded like that sometimes. If you read his letters, you read his words, it sure sounded like he thought that was going to happen in his lifetime. And no doubt he lived his life with constant expectation and watchfulness, which is actually what you and me and every generation of Jesus' followers is called to, to anticipate this unexpected expectation. So which is more natural for you? If it's easier for you to be expectant, praise God for that. Help those of us who are not inclined that way. 
The struggle for you, if you're expectant more naturally, will be to avoid the old adage of being so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. The struggle for you will perhaps be not wasting your time and your energy and your emphasis even trying to determine something that you never can. On the other hand, if you, like me, more naturally resign yourself to the unexpected part of this, ask God to, to rip out your cynicism. Ask God to, to give you greater expectation, greater anticipation of Jesus' return. And whatever your natural disposition, this unexpected expectation calls us to a particular posture, to a particular way of living each and every day. And we hear that throughout Mark 13. Verse 7, do not be alarmed, but verse 9, be on your guard. Don't be anxious, verse 11, but verse 33, be alert. So alert, but not alarmed or anxious. Prepared, but not panicked. The fact that we don't know the specific day or hour means that in one sense we can't be prepared, but the certainty of Jesus' return, the fact that we expect that means we can, even more that we must be ready and watchful and awake. And so third and finally, let's consider the everyday implications of Jesus' return. The everyday implications. When Jesus here says, be on your guard, keep awake, our mind might immediately think about something like doomsday preppers. Familiar with that show, uh, National Geographic? If you've never seen it, uh, it's a show that profiles people who are preparing for catastrophic apocalyptic disasters. Uh, they stockpile often, they stockpile food, uh, they stockpile weapons and ammo, uh, they build fortified bunkers. In other words, this show profiles the people who are now laughing at all the rest of us as we struggle to find toilet paper in the grocery stores. That's doomsday preppers. But that's not the preparation and the alertness and the wakefulness that's prescribed by Jesus. Doomsday prepping, think about this, doomsday prepping is, is about stockpiling things now so that you'll be able to adapt to a different way of life later. You don't, as a doomsday prepper, eat the stockpiled food. You don't use the weapons. You don't live in the bunkers now. They're for the future. They're for the someday. Someday you might have to live this way, so be prepared in case you have to change the way you live. What Jesus prescribes instead is a way of living that lines up completely with what he's already called his people to be and to do in the world. Preparedness and wakefulness for Jesus' return means instead adapting our lives now and then living that way today and tomorrow and every single day thereafter. Which is actually harder. Which is actually a lot harder. Especially when there's a long delay. Most of us are hard-working, disciplined people. And so readiness, preparation might not be that difficult for you as long as whatever you're preparing for happens relatively soon. Like, I was really ready for that pop quiz in my chemistry class in high school in 1999 for like those two weeks leading up to it. But if you gave me that test today, I would bomb it completely. I would sound like I would actually sound a lot like what I do sound like this week trying to help my daughter with her schoolwork when school's canceled. I don't know that stuff anymore. It's kind of gone in one ear and out the other. 
So the wakefulness and the readiness that Jesus is talking about has to come from something deeper and more powerful than simply our discipline or our hard work or our effort. God himself will have to sustain us in this everyday faithfulness, in this everyday preparation. Here's the thing. That's the only way we can ever follow Jesus in the first place. God must enable and empower us to do so. And for some reason, when we consider the return of Christ, we tend to, to scrap so quickly what the rest of the Bible teaches about how, the, how we live out our faith. It's as though we, we need God's grace to save us, to forgive our sin, and to restore our relationship with God. But then now that we're in, we can somehow prepare ourselves for his return by our own efforts. So I'll put it to you this way. You cannot doomsday prep your way into the kingdom of God. You can't doomsday prep your way into the kingdom of God. You can never be ready enough if that's your approach. You can never stockpile enough good works. You can never think someday I'll change the way that I live to be faithful right before Jesus comes back. From start to finish, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about his finished work. That he has secured the end from the beginning. The gospel is about our moment-by-moment dependence on Jesus so that we might live faithfully and that we might be ready for as many moments as there are between now and the day that he comes again. So what's our part? What's our part to play? In In this parable that he shares at the end of Mark 13, Jesus compares us to servants in the master's house. The master leaves on a journey. He goes away. For a while. And it says there in verse 34, he leaves each servant with their own work. So readiness will entail different specific roles for different people. But for all of us, it will transform our labors. It will transform how we do what we do and why we do what we do. It will bring into focus the Apostle Paul's words from Colossians chapter 3 that whatever you do, Work with all of your heart as for the Lord and not for people. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. A pastor named Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, Christians do not necessarily have better skills than others who make no Christian profession, but they do have stronger motives to use their skills properly and in readiness. He goes on to say, the true fruit of anticipation in the life of a Christian is the quality of his daily work and the glory which surrounds the fulfillment of his daily duty. That is what our Lord expects us to be doing when he returns. The famous itinerant minister John Wesley was once asked, if you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow, how would you spend today? And is that not the the classic question that we all ask ourselves when we think about the return of Jesus. Maybe you've even been considering that question in your own mind as you've been listening this morning. John Wesley, when he was asked that question, uh, pulled out his, his planner, his, his book of appointments, and he considered the list of his engagements for that day, and he replied, just like this. Just like this. And he said that because He was committed to live every day faithfully. Every day faithfully. There was no doomsday prep like now's the moment, now's the time to change everything. He was committed to live faithfully every day. If you find yourself today not being able to say the same thing, 
That's okay. That's okay. There's grace for us. But what I would invite you to this morning, use this moment. Use this moment. This moment where we're socially distancing and where schools and workplaces and social gathering sites are closed, where so much around us is shut down. Use this moment to consider what everyday wakefulness and readiness looks like. Use this moment to consider how your daily labors, your work, your interactions with other people, your friendships, your marriage, your raising of your children, how all of that takes on incredible meaning in light of the fact that Jesus will come again to complete his work of reconciling the world to himself. Years from now, as we look back on the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020, I hope, and I'm confident that this will be the case, I hope many of us will point to this as a time when God so shook our lives circumstantially that it drove us to stand on the only unshakable foundation, which is the kingdom of God. That faith and dependence and wakefulness and readiness became for us not merely doctrine, not merely theoretical ideas, but embodied truths in our lives. That our expectation of Jesus' return and our faithfulness to its everyday implications grew exponentially during these days. In 2007, the Atlantic magazine celebrated its 150th anniversary it asked a number of people to write and publish short essays about the American idea. One such essay came from a man named Sam Harris, uh, who's a relatively well-known and published atheist. And his essay was entitled, God Drunk Society. God Drunk Society. In it, he laments, quote, many Americans apparently believe that Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world with his magic powers. This is not a good bet, much less a useful idea. And yet, abject superstition of this kind engorges our nation from sea to shining sea. He goes on to say, it need not be so. We could lead the world in wise environmental policies, scientific education, medicinal research, aid to developing countries, and every other project relevant to the durable welfare of humanity. In other words, Harris writes, Stop watching and waiting for the someday of Jesus' return and contribute something good today. Which makes sense. Unless, unless Jesus' return is the only thing that can empower and sustain real good in the world. Unless the fact that Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world is the very reason why we pursue every project relevant to the durable welfare of humanity today. Do you want to do genuine good in the world? I do too. I do too. Don't diminish the return of Christ. Maximize it. Make it larger in your vision. Work as those who know the outcome of the redemptive mission of God. Work with the kind of durability and diligence and passion that is only possible for those of us who know we cannot ultimately fail. If Jesus' return diminishes our incentive to pour ourselves out for the good of humanity, then we are missing the point of Jesus' return. So don't commit yourself partially 
to the return of Christ so that you then engage with reservation or hesitation about the significance of your efforts today. Commit yourself so fully to his return that you can't help but wholeheartedly invest yourself in this world that he loves. In this church, you will never see a chart or a billboard or a banner predicting the day. You will, I hope, be part of even louder, everyday proclamations of the imminence of Jesus' return. Proclamations in the way that we spend ourselves for the flourishing of this region and world. Proclamations in the way we speak of the beauty and the need for what Jesus has accomplished. Proclamations in the way we serve and sacrifice our time and our money and our comfort so that others might be loved and cared for. Proclamations in the way we labor in productive vocations, in our jobs, imaging God as co-creators and cultivators of what he has made. So church, don't waste a moment of today worrying about when or worrying about the specific signs. Run to and rest in the reality that just as Jesus has come into the world and lived the life that we could not and died the death that we deserved, and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, so too Jesus will return in power and glory. And every eye will see him, and all his people will be gathered from the ends of the earth. In light of this, be faithful today. Love God and love neighbor today. Be wakeful and ready today. And then be ready and be wakeful tomorrow. By the grace of God, let your confidence in Jesus' return make you that much more expectant and dependent and productive and beneficial. And may Jesus come soon to complete his reconciling work and to make all things new. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of hope, God of the only true hope in this world, as workers at night long for the sunrise, so we long for the coming of Christ. Today we long for your Holy Spirit to renew us in grace and to give us a glimpse, a glimpse of your glory that one day we will see in full when all will be made new. We ask these things, we pray these things through Christ our Lord and our light. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.